0: Back in 2015, I stepped onto court to warm up for a match later that day with then junior world number one, Andre Rublev. During this summer break from University in America, I was playing in the Liverpool International Tournament and I was lucky that on the other side of the net for my warm up was coach Sam Jalloh. He did a pretty good job that day. As a player, I knew Sam already as a well-respected coach in the tennis community and as an all-round good guy. What I wasn't really aware of at the time was his incredible story and his amazing outlook on life in general. Born and raised in Sierra Leone and growing up during a period of one of Africa's most brutal civil wars, Sam defied the odds and overcame situations that some of his family and friends didn't manage to survive. Hearing his backstory, it's hard to believe that today Sam is a tennis coach, a TED talker, motivational speaker and author. It's a real honour to know him and to have him share his inspirational story with us on One of the Eight.
1: I, I learned very quickly in life that you can take anything either the negative way which will affect your life, you know, in such a bad way, or you can take all your struggles, put them together and build something out of it, tell your story and go out there and help other people so they don't have to go through the same thing that I went through.
0: I'm Jake Worley and this is One of the Eight bringing you the real life stories of real world people, the things they have achieved and the things that have inspired them. In this episode, we have the chance to hear from a man who was born and raised in the midst of a brutal and violent civil war, painful levels of poverty and a life that has thrown relentless adversity his way. What today's guest has achieved is nothing short of remarkable and his story is truly incredible. So Sam, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much, Jake, and uh, I'm very excited uh, here today to be with all your listeners
0: and to share, you know, my life journey coming from Africa. So, as I've learned more about you and your life and what you've experienced so far, it's actually quite difficult to know where to begin. So, I think it would be great to start with some insight kind of as to where your life began.
1: Yes, uh, well, I was born in Sierra Leone in 1982 um, as uh, People may know now that uh, Sierra Leone is a very rich country, in natural resources, but uh, due to extreme corruption and mismanagement, Sierra Leone is ranked as one of the poorest nations on the planet. And so where I was born is an area called Wilberforce, uh, which was um, named after William Wilberforce, who was a British politician uh, who helped for the pioneer and the freedom of slavery, that um, people deserve to have their own free rights. So Sierra Leone, obviously the capital city is called Freetown. So when um, William Wilberforce helped to free the slave, they were settled in Freetown. So the first free slave were called, uh, the, the, because of the first free slave, they named the capital Freetown. So I was born in Wilberforce, which was named after William Wilberforce. So that's just a little bit of history of the, okay. capi- of the capital city. But Tembe where I was born, is like uh, one of the worst slums in the capital city. It's basically 90% plus of the people who are there uh, can earn anything from 20 cents a day, 20 pence a day, to 50 pence a day. People live under $1 per day. And uh, almost all the people who live there, including my family, they were very much uneducated. So, I was one of 11 children. uh, Oh, wow. Yeah. So, my mom had uh, 11 of us. And she never gave birth in hospital or with professional help. So all the children were born at home or somewhere, wherever she was. And uh, for me, I was actually born in a farm. So my mom went that morning in uh, February 10, 1982, to do some work on her farm about six in the morning. And then um, here she felt a labor pain and she just lie on the side. And wise other women who came to, you know, water their plants, And then they found my mom, you know, uh, screaming for help. So they helped deliver me safely. But uh, unfortunately, before me, there were three boys who were born and they died at birth. Like I said, um, you know, because Sierra Leone also have one of the worst medical facilities in the world. And um, uh, child infant, um, child mortality rate was the highest on the planet. So we were ranked like the worst country. So, so many children were dying during birth and women were dying as giving birth to children because of the lack of um, medical facility. So, you know, my mom, thanks to, you know, her strength and I survived. So it was a very, very tough childhood. Also, my dad had never had any education. My mom never had any education. So they, they both do two to three different jobs every day just to make ends meet. Wow. And like like I said, they they earn modern, um less than a uh, uh, fifty cents or dollar a day, and um, but for whatever reason, people seem to be able magically to survive.
0: Were you able to go to school during this time?
1: Uh, I I did. I went to school, but my other siblings didn't go to school because our parents were very poor. So as, after my first year in school, my my dad also had an offer for me to you know to be adopted because the people who own the corrugated house where we live and they wanted to adopt a child so my dad um, you know he didn't have another choice he wanted me to be educated so he decided okay he will give me away to these people so i was adopted so that i can have better education because he didn't want me to end up like him you know without education so the the condition where we live in the house as well was really bad because we our house was like a eight foot by ten foot wide, so it was pretty small. So we got my mom, my dad, and my siblings, cousins, friends, and all sleeping on the floor on cardboards, you know, without bed. So yeah. the card the cardboard's are things that where my parents actually found those in the in the door so they bring them home. And that's what we slept on. And in the raining season, we have monsoon rain, which, you know, water running into the house. We have to wake up and try and stop the water from flooding the house. So, but yes, I started school with my, with my, with my uh, parents. And then at the age of six, I was adopted. So I moved to a new family.
0: How did it, I mean, that must have been, I can't imagine there are many situations in life that are quite as hard as a decision like that to have to make for your father. How did it make you feel? Because I guess, obviously, in one sense, you're having to leave your home and your family, but it's because they want you to try and have a better life. How did you feel when that moment came? At that time, I I
1: felt betrayal to my dad because as a young kid, you know, and speaking to people, I was six years old. But the the difference with growing in Africa as a six year old is you remember pretty much everything that happened to you because we had such a tough life. If you're rich and wealthy, when you have a good life, you tend not to remember things. Right. But, um, but yeah, so my, my dad made a decision at that time, which I think was for my own good. But as a child, I didn't see it that way. And But until um, now, when I grew older, I realized that you know actually my dad was doing me a favor because he, has already, uh, he knew what it is like uh, not having education and not having a good job. And where he was just working every day for, like, you know, try to make a dollar just to make ends meet. So, and um, so he, it was tough as a child, like I said, to leave my siblings, my, you know, childhood home where I've grown up, even though we were extremely poor, uh, basically having one meal a day. And, but I love it. I love to be around my, my siblings and my friends and all this kind of thing. But that was taken away from me at the age of six, and I was, you know, went and adopted and, Moved to a new
0: family, so it was it was tough. And how was it with the with the new family? How was life there?
1: Uh, that was some of the toughest challenges I ever had as a child because um, uh, the people who adopted me they they called the Creole people the Creole are like a descendant from slavery. So they have a philosophy where they say "spear not the rod and save the child," meaning if you have a whip, you have to use it and discipline the child. So. I was having an average of three to four beatings every week. I mean, serious beating. And there was no forgiveness about mistake. But uh, in the end, to be honest with you, as I grew older, I, even though they were so cruel to me and I was receiving so much beating, I realized that uh, those beating actually kept me almost uh, grounded. That It makes me realize that for whatever re- um, reaction I take in my life, whatever decision I make, is a consequences to it? So, for example, uh, one day they asked me to go f- uh, buy a kerosene, a kerosene, in a field, in a gas station. So, on my way, I met other kids playing football. Being a child, I just want to join in and play. Yeah. And during during this time, whilst I was playing, I lost the money, and when I finished, I have no kerosene. My toes were bleeding. I'm over an hour late, so I knew exactly what what I was gonna get. And when I went home to be honest with you, I received a beating of my life because I didn't brought the money the caros in, and they didn't understand that um, as a child you need those sort of you know social life to keep. It yeah. Going. But um, but yeah, so I was with them for three years, and then after that, uh, it reached a point where I have to run away and start living on the streets and place to place.
0: So. I think this was probably a very pivotal part in your life. I around the age of nine, when you ran away, this was also the time where possibly one of the worst times for your country happened. This was around 1991. What what started around this time?
1: Well, uh I was, I ran away, I was nine years old, and then uh, the civil war uh, started in Sierra Leone in March 1991. The war was also, it started actually in Liberia by former leader uh, Charles Taylor, who is now in prison in the Northwest here for life or 50 years in prison and um, so he was in America I think in prison so he escaped and then he got to Africa and formed a rebel group so one of the guys who was his main guy who helped him to fight in Liberia so when he became a president uh, he said to him well okay so we've got Liberia he helped a guy called Fode Sanko and then they start this brutality in Sierra Leone so you know, I mean, that was Sierra Leone civil war is uh, is ranked as one of the worst civil war in the history of Africa in terms of the the the, the pure uh, brutality that was uh, inflicted against the population and the way they were killing people, amputating people, and then also there were thousands of children who were child soldiers and. And I saw that 1st That you know, as a child, all I had was, you know, war crime, being a refugee and people being shot in front of me and all this kind of thing. And so I have so many of my family members who were killed. And obviously one of my best friends as well was killed, but I'll come to that later.
0: So what was it like growing up during that war in terms of what kind of effect has it had on your perspective of life?
1: Well, it has so many negative and so many positive things. uh, Because one of the things for me, Jake, if you see today, I'm going around trying to speak a lot to, I like to speak more to the younger generation and also people who are in public places, like people who are leaders. That, you know, there's a thing called, uh, there's a thing I'm writing at the moment called, uh, which I titled, The Power of Hate and Love. You know, each of them, The Power of Hate, is so powerful that it can make it can terrorize people's lives to a point where i've seen people commit suicide so many people want to just die they don't want to live anymore and also the power of love you know at the same time when shown to people it can make you feel that you can fly it can make you feel that you want to live it can make you feel that you're you're a human being so what i learned from the war is that you know when people have hate among them and when conflict is between the younger generation and the government it becomes such a, you know, such a catastrophe that it's very difficult to control people. I'll give you an example uh, to say again, you know, uh, at one point when they attack, you know, our area in Hill Station where I used to live. Yeah. So we moved to another area, you know, for safety. And whilst I was there, um, I had a lot of noise people coming out and then run outside. It was actually saw so that the, the rebels have captured a foreign soldier who they killed and they, they cut his head off his body and they were playing football with it on the street. So as a little kid, you know, seeing this uh, for almost half a year, the image of seeing somebody had been kicked around, you know, just because of this thing called war, because somebody need power, somebody need the resources in Sierra Leone, or somebody has created something called AK-47. It was very, very hard to see and I couldn't understand why as human beings, you know, we can go to this length to a point that's where we, we have no empathy for each other There's, there was no humility, there was no one care about each other and, and I saw that effect which I'm writing you know, uh, a presentation called The Power of Hate and Love, so all this comes from my experience which was some of the worst thing I ever faced in my life
0: I mean, th- this sounds, obviously, it's some of the most horrific things and th- there is no age in life where that's ever acceptable to see. But, you know, as a as somebody as young as you were, it must have just been catastrophic. And is it true that you were actually captured yourself?
1: Yes, I was captured not once, not twice, but many, many times. And um, uh, I'll just give uh, some example of the time. One of the other t- the first time I was captured was, uh, we were in my tennis club in Hill Station, and we were playing hand tennis and boat bats. And, uh, I mean, the war has been going on for many years. So we have no choice. There's nothing we can do. We're just young kids. The tennis court was a place for us to, you know, to stay and to stay alive and yeah. to keep going and to stay positive and stay away from all this negative thing that was going on. So the foreign soldier who came, they didn't understand why there was a problem going on and we are there playing tennis. So we all got captured and taken to the military checkpoint and my hands were tied behind my back where both my elbows were tied to each other and and the guy said uh, you all look like rebels and things like this so we got beaten for like an hour and they were whipping us beating us and you're not allowed to scream and if you scream they hit you more and so this kind of violence even with the soldiers the people that you think well they're here to you know, to protect the people. They weren't actually protecting the people. They were causing more damage. They were, you know, beating children because they, they thought that every child was a rebel. So it was very, very cruel at that time. And also uh, another one happened again where I was captured. Uh, wise, me and my other colleagues, uh, were standing talking about football and one of the military leader was passing by. So sarcastically, I waved to him. So he went to see the president coming back down towards the tennis court, a military talk, pulled over and captured all of us. And then we're taken to the military barracks where there's a prison. And fortunately for me, I had a friend uh, who was a foreign soldier. I did some tennis and martial arts and table tennis with him. So he recognized I was part of the group. And, you know, he went behind me where he said, Sam, I'm going to let you go. And you must run because this is quite bad. And I don't want to see you and I want you to disappear. So I was very scared at that time obviously. And I thought he was gonna shoot me, but eventually he let me go. But my other colleagues were in prison for twenty one days. And thankfully all of them are alive and they were released a day before the city was attacked again. So so these are some of the, the cruel experience I faced during my childhood, you know, for a war that I barely know anything about. So it it was tough.
0: Yeah, I mean, it just sounds awful. And I guess to to kind of add to, you know, the horror of the things going on, I believe that there was a time where your parents got divorced and I guess you kind of got split between the two, right?
1: Yes. Uh, once I was adopted, my mom and dad disappeared after being together for so many years. And then uh, eventually when I, when I uh, run away from my adopted family, I was living on the street from family members. And then my mom moved to the tennis court, which is in Hill Station. And that tennis court was built in 1904 by the British settlers, the British colonial people who were uh, residing at Hill Station, which was a, like a community thing where, you know, they all meet in the evening and have a game of tennis. Right. So so my mom went and um, and where she went to moving in with her new partner was only 10 yards away you know, from the from these three tennis courts. But as a child, one of my jobs that my mom was doing was uh, in the morning, apart from doing her farming thing where she grows, you know, vegetables and all other crops like uh, groundnuts, sweet potato and, you know, onions, tomato and all these kind of things. And she also go to the jungle and cut woods and uh, little branches she put together and tie together as a firewood. And then the big logs, she will burn them as charcoal that she'll sell in the market. So during this five mile walk from where we used to live to the to the jungle, we'll walk past through this tennis court. And I remember as a little child, I used to admire this game so much, you know, the game of tennis. And it was all many, I mean, most of the time you see it's only white people that were, you know, playing well-dressed. And I actually love to play the, the game of tennis. But, and then, you know, I was living, it was just a far away dream for me to play tennis.
0: Were your parents accepting of your love and interest of, of tennis?
1: My mom didn't bother, but I remember when I was um, a little bit older. I think I was twelve years old, and I went to my dad. And by then, I started playing tennis. I've, I've really, really fallen in love with the sport because I didn't live with my dad after uh, my mom and dad separated. Because I knew my dad was really tough and he was disciplined, and he would not allow me to do anything to do with sport. He wanted me to be a doctor. So I went to him and I said, Dad, you know, um, uh, you know, I want to play tennis. I love tennis. I love this game. And I could still remember my dad's face when he looked at me and he goes, son, if I ever see you play that rich white man's spot, I'm going to amputate all your fingers, all of oh, them. And, oh, my. So, and, and my dad was so serious. But, you know, I, in my head as a, as a child, I knew how serious my dad was. But I defied my dad in a way that, okay, I'm not going to tell my dad anything. I'm going to live with my mom and I'm going to play tennis. One day I'll prove to my dad that I made a good decision. But in another words, my dad, you know, it wasn't like he was cruel or this kind of thing. It's just that for him, he's never seen anyone, you know, Sierra Leonean native who have played tennis to a decent level. And most of the kids who were involved in sports end up on the street, not going to school and smoking weed and all this kind of thing. So my dad didn't want any of this for me. So, that's why he wanted me to focus on studying and becoming a doctor, not uh, focusing a lot on sports. So, so I didn't hold anything against him because I knew he wanted the best for me. But, you know, in the end of the story, which we might we can talk about later, everything was fine between me and my dad.
0: OK. Um, but, uh, you know, g- given the times of the country and kind of the situation you're in, I mean, tennis is not a cheap sport. How did you get any equipment or string to actually play?
1: Well, uh, yeah, I love this question because this is one of the things I love to talk about, especially when I live in the Western world, I have to help (laughs) children to understand this. And first of all, like I said, there's a popular game in Sierra Leone called hand tennis, which is played via hand. And I was a, like a national champion in that. I, okay. No one could beat me in playing hand tennis. And even today, with a lot of the kids that I that I actually travel with, I let them practice hand tennis with me as a part of warm up and a fun. And because we couldn't afford rackets, so we come up with a hand tennis. So it's a, we draw a rectangular shape uh, court, which is smaller than a tennis court. Obviously, there's no net, but there's a line in the middle. So you bounce the ball like table tennis. You serve like table tennis from your side to the other side, and then you play. Like a tiebreak system. Okay. And then uh, if you're good at that, uh, when we can go to the carpenter and beg for old plywood, and then we'll cut them like a table tennis bat, but slightly bigger. And then that's what we used to play with. And so because we didn't have racket, we create both, but which is more like a paddle tennis or beach tennis, whatever way you want to call it. So we use that to play. We didn't make excuse. but finally when I have rackets, um I think I was uh around between uh, eight and ten years old, I really, really touched a racket because uh even though I was with my adopted family, every other two weekends they used to make the make me go visit my mom. So during those times I started playing more boat bat and more uh tennis and more hand tennis. So when I finally settled with my mom, I got a wooden racket and that was good and then I had a print metal racket. And so what happened is we couldn't afford string as well. So we okay. started going to the to the town where they sell the shark fishing line. Because the shark fishing line, they they are very thick. They're like, you know, in the string when you have 1.30, uh, 1.25, they were like 1.5. I don't know what it is. Wow. They, were so,
0: they
1: were so thick. <laughs> but that's what we used to use on our rackets, you know, because we couldn't afford a normal string. So we get a shark fishing line. And we'll use that and then if it breaks, we wouldn't take the whole string and we'll patch it and you got like 10 different tension on, the, on <laughs> one racket. You know, but it, it, we never complain and we never really actually complain. And but one how, of the thing
0: I would, yeah. Because, how did you string the racket?
1: Um, well, uh, that's another thing. One of my uh, cousin who is now living in England Uh, He used to have a very old machine, which that was the only type I ever saw and I never saw anyone like that again It has a handle like you wind it and wind it, you got to wind it for ages, you know, just to get the tension But also um, at some point in time when I was actually competing, I learned to restring my racket without machine Up to today, I could restring a racket and play with it without machine, any tension all I need is just one clip. I don't need a machine. I can restring a racket. So, <laughs> so that's what poverty can do with you. Things were very tough, but we, we managed to find ways and don't make excuses.
0: So around the age of 10, you finally got the chance to play with a racket. You know, you you figured out a way to sort out the string. So you go on a little bit of, you know, tennis progression. You're figuring out the sport and, you know, going up the levels you actually got to represent your country, right?
1: Yes, yes. And that was, uh, I was 13 years old, but before that, like I said, when I was 10 years old, and I had um, from one of my friends saying, because by then I didn't realize that uh, the kids were really good from the age of 12, they can play ITF tournament. I never knew anything about ITF tournament. I don't know anything that goes on in terms of tournaments. I know about, you know, competing, I was very competitive. If I play with my friends, I will never let anyone beat me. Even if they beat me, I'll be very, very angry. So, <laughs> so anyway, so I had this overheard this kid say, you know, um, Amido and so and so, the other guys who went to represent Sierra Leone, they're coming. You know, uh, they're coming soon from Togo, and they've been playing IT here. And then, uh, moreover, you know, as kids go, I say, oh, um, you know, they give them a two hundred and fifty US dollar allowance. They get national tracksuit because shoes they got rackets and I went to my friend I said they give them all that money $250 so as a little child um, I sat you know calculating and said oh well $250 US dollar is good enough you know to sustain my family for half a year and I still have enough to pay for my school fee and then the rest I can you know take it for my tournament so my quest for playing tennis was actually to help feed my family And moreover, to, um, you know, to pay for my school fee for myself. Because I promised myself and promised that, you know, I'll make sure I go to school and I'll make sure I prove my dad wrong that um, despite playing tennis, I will become a a well-educated kid and I will never fail to go to school. So this was my why for playing tennis because I wanted to feed my family. But moreover, I was desperate to have one of those national tracks, especially when the guys... I uh, turn up from the tournament. They all look so well-dressed in the lovely green, white and blue track suits, And I envy that. And from that day on, I never looked back. And I said to myself, this is me. This is why I have to play this sport. And I'm going to make sure that I get it.
0: Yeah. And in, in 2007, what were you taking part in then?
1: Uh, yes, in 2007, that was my last and final international tournament. Um, I was 25. I played in the ninth All African Games, which was held in uh, Algeria, North Africa, oh, wow. the capital city today. So the the All African Game obviously is the biggest sporting event in Africa, which involve I think uh, twenty three or more of other sports. So Sierra Leone obviously taking part in the All African Game, which we have fifty four nations in Africa, and um, so I was fortunate for my you know that time my uh, vice tennis president to ring me up. And said, Sam, uh, I know we've spoke before because I told them I don't want to play anymore for the national team because we've had so many, you know, uh, frustration and disappointment from funding. And we formed the Davis Cup team. There's no funding, and we go for futures. We have to pay for ourselves and all this kind of thing. So after finishing the all the 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 ITF Junior, which by then the ITF was actually helped funding our traveling. They pay for our tickets. And they gave us free accommodation, So all our county was doing was to offer us, uh, you know, allowances and all our gear and all this kind of thing. So, and the ITF Junior was good. But, and then when I moved to the Senior, it was really tough because all we have to look forward to is the Davis Cup, the futures. So the All-African game was uh, one of the things that everybody want to be part of. It's like the European Games; You want to represent your country. So I did have that opportunity and um, I was chosen as the flag bearer for Sierra Leone. Oh, wow. Of some of my proudest moments. And I remember, you know, for the Open Ceremony, they have uh, over 50, 60,000 people in the stadium and coming out to the tunnel and walking with my flag and seeing the whole crowd was cheering and watching yourself on the big screen and being part of, you know, this big African uh, sporting culture. It was something I will never forget. And I'm so grateful to tennis and obviously my efforts, you know, to, to uh, get to the national team.
0: The thing that I find probably most inspiring in all of that is I think people could be forgiven if they had the upbringing and the life that you had up until this point. I think it'd be very easy to feel angry at your situation and angry at the country. And in reality, when you're there in that moment, your proudest feeling is representing that country, wearing the tracksuit and having the flag of that country.
1: Yes, it, it was, and I, one of the I think the most question I've been asked all over the, the world, wherever I've been, is how do you never have any grudge? You never feel like you know you're angry. Well, I can't because we lost over 120,000 people who lost their life, and here I am. Of course, I have the you know the the memory of um, all these horrible things that happened uh, during the civil war and what I saw and seeing some of my friends being shot in front of me and all this kind of thing. But I, I learned very quick in life that you can take anything either the negative way which will affect your life, you know, in such a bad way or you can take all your struggles, put them together and build something out of it, tell your story and go out there and help other people so they don't have to go through the same thing that I went through. So I look at the positive out of this rather than the negative. And obviously, I will never forget what happened, but I forgive everybody because forgiveness is not just for the people that you forgive. It's to also free yourself from the burden that and the pain that people cause you so you can move on and learn from it and hope that it never happened again. And another example of this you see in the Second World War and you know what happened between Germany and Great Britain and all the other countries. Yeah. When I go to Germany today, they love the British people. You know, you go to, you come to England, everybody loves each other and just move on. So we, we don't live in the past, but we don't also make the past, you know, um, make us rebel against each other. It makes I think we should come more closer to each other because what I've experienced in the war, like I said, the power of hate and the power of love. We should have more of the power of love than the power of hate and forgive each other and learn to to make this world a better place and and also to make younger children understand that they are the future, they can go on to good things rather than taking guns and knives. Like we saw in even in Great Britain today, there's so much stabbing and shooting and whatever going on, you know, with the younger generation. But this is why I'm taking on this mission to use my story as a platform to inspire the younger generation not to take that route and think positively and work for themselves to be better.
0: So... I mean, to give kind of our listeners a brief summary of what you are right now, you're a a fully licensed and highly respected coach in England. You're a motivational speaker. You're also a founder of a foundation, Um, you know, and that's just to name a slight few. Um, One question I have to ask is when you look back at these types of things that you've discussed in your life so far, can you believe that you're the person that you are today?
1: it's very difficult to believe you know um like uh, recently when i did the ted talk and i remember when i finished i have a lot of the people we were having a a drink just to have a break and a lot of people come to the to the backstage and they were talking to me the students the you know parents and uh, a couple came up to me and said me and my wife were both in tears you know listening to your story but Not because um, we want to cry; we just felt so inspired and the strength that is coming out of you, and and with all the support I've had from the LTA and now the USDA, helping to promote my story in America. And I've been to—I was in Canada, I was in Chile, and you know, everywhere in Europe, in Spain, in Germany, and doing book signing. If anyone would have told me that my life would be like this today, I would have thought that people are crazy. The only thing (laughs) that I knew as a child. I knew that I wanted to play tennis, you know, to you know, to make a better life out of it, so I can help my my mom and dad. But it's very, very hard to comprehend, you know, the level of um, things that I have accomplished, you know, being an international coach, working with uh, competitive players. You know, I I actually met you. Remember at the Liverpool International? Yes. And I had a hit with you, and Ruble, who's my friend. I remember you played against Ruble, and, and I, I, I was did. thinking to myself, how good you were. You know, you nearly got him in in the first set. I remember (laughs) I was in the first set and Rublev was the world number one junior. And I said to you, you know, what an amazing fit it would be for you to keep training and working harder. But to have that opportunity to meet people like yourself and, you know, Rublev and all these great people who have met and been on Centre Court myself, I've done a few exhibition matches there myself. And, you know, it's something um, that I never thought would be possible, but, you know, thanks to tennis and thanks to the resilience of uh, other people who helped me on the way. And, um, yeah, it's a really roller coaster, which sometimes I sit in places I don't really believe that this is me, you know, going around the world and expressing myself uh, and telling my stories.
0: It's it's just amazing. Um, I guess our last question for you for today is... Here on our podcast, we always get each of the one of the eight to tell us about something that has inspired them. It could be a book, a film, an event, or an experience. What's inspired you, Sam?
1: My parents. My mom and dad, they inspired me a lot. Because, like I said, my dad worked uh, 365 or 66 days a year, seven days a week, round the clock, and three different jobs. Never complained, my dad was disciplined. My mom was the same. She had 11 children. Of course, we lost some of them, but she was also looking after cousins and nephews, nieces and nephews, and all kinds of people, street children, homeless kids. My mom never stopped, never complained. So when I, when people always ask me, who are your heroes? It's my mom and dad and one of my sister who eventually was murdered by the boyfriend in 2006. So, and, um, and also before I finish this uh, question, you just asked me. Yeah. I also have a, a story that happened to me on the, um, on the 14th of February, 1998, where my best friend, who actually inspired me to play tennis, uh, was killed right in front of me. That morning, he woke me up. We walk outside because the attack has happened. And whilst we're outside the tennis court, another friend of ours called me and said, Sam, come and see the bomb that the jet has dropped over here. So I took about two, three steps, and then I have a rapid AK-47 shot behind me. When I turned around, it was my best friend who I've lived with, who have inspired me to play, who always play hand tennis, board bat tennis or tennis with me. We went to school together and he wanted me to be the best. So he's just been killed right in front of me. So he he's the person, him, my mom, my dad and my late sister. They were the people who actually inspired me to become what I am today. And that's why my hard work has come from my family, because that's what I saw from my parents that. It doesn't matter how poor you are. It doesn't matter what happened for the day. You must be disciplined, respectful, and you must work really hard. So my mom and dad, my sibling, and some of my siblings and my late friend, they are my hero. They inspired me to want to even work and become the best.
0: That is just, I mean, the way you see life and your approach to tackling challenges is just awesome. It's just incredible. Um, thank you very much for sharing it. I just have one little last question for you. Yeah. What What are your um, next plans moving forward? What's coming up next?
1: Uh, well, um, I got a lot of things coming on at the, at the minute, obviously with all the media thing. But um, I'm trying to finish four other books, uh, which, like I said to you, one of them is uh, Tennis Madness, which I'm trying to finish. And I have a fiction book, which is similar to my story, which I'm uh, doing it like a movie. So okay. I guess in, in the future, you know, somebody might pick that up to do it as a movie. And oh, also, wow. um I'm trying for my own story as well, you know, to, to find people one day I'm hoping that we'll be able to turn it into a movie, which I think will be an inspiring uh, story. So it's a lot of work going into it, but in the future for me, it's more motivational speaking and um, writing and then looking after my family and uh, try to inspire as many people as possible and become uh, a good father, a good coach, and a good motivational speaker, and a good author. So those are my plan for now. And once my kids have grown a little bit where they can be independent, I'll likely go back to Africa to help the younger generation and help to develop tennis in Sierra Leone and help the country as a whole, um, you know, to help the younger generation to be more positive and involved in things. and hopefully spend some time with my mom who I've not uh, stayed with since I was a kid.
0: Wow. Well, yeah. I don't doubt for a second that you'll accomplish all of those things. Um, yeah. And I can't wait to kind of see how things progress.
1: You know, to be here speaking to you, I will, I love this. This is the life I live for and I, I I'll do this again whenever you need me to speak, wherever, yeah. you know, you have something going on and I'll always be there because, you know, I don't know. You know, life is very short and whatever I've learned and experienced, I would like to help and cheer for humanity's sake. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. And also, like I said, I'm able to run my foundation now in Africa. I forget to mention but that. That's something I would love to carry on until I die in uh, inspiring and helping children. So thank you so much.
0: There are almost 8 billion people on our planet and Sam Jallo is one of the eight. You can find links to more about Sam and to his book, Tennis Saved My Life, online at oneoftheeight.com. Everyone has a story to share. Everyone has something to give. Everyone can inspire. One of the Eight is a movement of real-world people from across the globe, sharing real-life stories, inspiring others, enriching lives, and giving something back. I am. You are everyone is one of the eight now streaming on spotify apple podcast google play or wherever you listen to your podcasts be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode join the movement at oneoftheeight.com